welcome you to Severn and to, believe it or not, this is the last week of our series uh, called The Faces of Sin, where um, what we've done for this one is uh, looked at a whole bunch of different stories and passages in Scripture to try to get an understanding of what the Bible's talking about when it talks about this thing called sin. And uh, if you have been tuning in, you know that there's really one question that's kind of progressively been boiling to the surface with each one of these teachings. And the question is, uh, all right, well, if that's the problem, what's the solution? What are we supposed to do about it? And that is uh, exclusively what we're going to be focusing on this morning. So I want to read um, Psalm 51 to you. We're going to start on that note. All right. Psalm 51 says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. So if you're familiar with the book of Psalms, you know that every once in a while there's a psalm that in part of the title, it tells us exactly why that psalm was written. And the specific reason that David wrote Psalm 51 goes back to uh, his failure with Bathsheba, which we uh, looked at exclusively last week. That's why we're looking at the psalm that he wrote in light of that this week. In a nutshell, David has experienced a, just a catastrophic, potentially life-derailing failure. He has stolen the wife of one of his soldiers, a man named Uriah, who was actually one of his good friends. While Uriah was out at war, he got her pregnant, and so in an attempt to cover that sin up, he had Uriah murdered. He thought that was the end of it, but that blew up in his face. And so David, in writing this psalm, is writing from the depths of guilt and shame and condemnation, and there's a number of questions hanging over David's head in this particular moment of his life. Uh, I can think of at least three. Um, How is David ever going to face his people again? He has completely forfeited the right to call himself their king. I don't know 
why anybody should ever trust David again in light of what he's done. Secondly, uh, how is David ever going to face himself again? Uh, But thirdly and most importantly, how is David ever going to face God again? Uh, Certainly everybody that comes to God and is a part of God's family is a walking testimony of the grace of God, but I don't know that anybody can say that uh, more so than David could. You know, David was... He was the runt of the litter in his father, Jesse's family. His own father didn't even see any potential in him, and yet God anointed him king over Israel. Everything about David, everything that he was, everything that he had, his entire life was a gift of grace that he did nothing to earn, and David's basically trampled all of that. And so David is in a situation that a lot of people uh, simply wouldn't recover from. What's remarkable here is not only does David recover from it, but when you read Psalm 51, he actually somehow finds a way to be even better on the other side of it. If you, if you move through this psalm and you pay real careful attention, you notice the first half of it is really heavy. But then in the second half of it, David starts to say some pretty amazing things that indicate that he found a way to come up from this failure uh, better, stronger, wiser, um, um, just a person of greater depth than he was even before. And, you, and I'll just point out a few of these things to you. For instance, in verse, um, verse 13, David talks about teaching the rebellious the ways of God and being the kind of person that leads sinners back to God. So this is David. Even in the midst of this moment in his life, David had some kind of sense that that not only would this not be a dead end for him, but that his failure would somehow be used to accomplish a great deal of good in the lives of others. And obviously, David was, he could have, there's no way he could have understood how right he was about that. For the last several thousand years, people have turned to Psalm 51 to climb out of the the hole of guilt and shame and condemnation. David knew that even here. If you read verses, um, verse 15, he talks about uh, declaring God's praise, which is such an amazing thing for somebody in his situation to be talking about. There's a joy welling up inside of him that he can't help but turn into worship. In verses 16 and 17, He starts talking about the kind of sacrifice that God is actually after, that's actually meaningful to him. And so David has managed to come to an even deeper understanding of who God is. He's got got the ability to see into the heart of God with even more clarity than he had before this failure. And of course, at the end of it, he's praying for Zion, which proves he's he's starting to get out of that self-centeredness that got him into this mess in the first place. He's thinking like a leader again, and he's thinking about... He doesn't just want himself to prosper. He wants his people to prosper. He's the kind of leader that everybody wants to follow, a leader that puts his people first. But to me, by far the most amazing thing David says in this psalm is something in verse 14. I don't know if this this stood out to you, but in verse 14, David talks about singing about God's righteousness. He's not talking about singing about God's mercy or love or compassion or forgiveness, his righteousness. Now, to me, That is the thing that David should be most terrified of, the righteousness of God. That's his holiness. That's his justice. That's his uncompromising nature. And yet David has somehow managed to get to this point where not only is the righteousness of God not a threat to him, it's a comfort to him that results in joy inside of him. And so first and foremost, the question that that Psalm 51 invites the reader to ask is, Can you rise from failure like this? Could you rise from from a failure like David's the way that he rises here? Could you get up from a failure of this nature with this unshakable assurance that that not only is your story story not coming to an end, but your story is going to be used to, to help countless other people that God brings into your life? Could you have that kind of confidence? Could you rise from a failure like this with the kind of joy that you just can't help but turn into worship? 
And could you rise from a failure like this as a genuinely transformed person that not only has a better understanding of the heart of God, but as a person who has been genuinely liberated from their self-centeredness? And I think most self-aware people, if they wrestled with that question, they would say, they'd have to say, I'd love to say yes to that. I'd love to say, yeah, absolutely, I'm that kind of person, but I don't know. I don't know if I am. And the point is, Psalm 51 says it's possible to do this because David did this, which, of course, begs the question, well, how on earth did David get through this and somehow manage to be better? And the answer boils down to just one thing, and it's what we're going to talk about this morning. It's repentance. So before I go any further, just because repentance, I think, brings a lot of different things to to different people's minds and you know, it's certainly not viewed in a positive light. What I thought would be the, the most helpful thing to do is, before I, before I move forward, let's just make sure that we understand what we're talking about when we talk about repentance. And the best definition that I've found for this word is something that I heard Tim Keller say one time, and we actually made a slide for it. When we talk about repentance, here's what repentance is. Repentance is killing the habits of your heart that are killing you without killing yourself. That's what repentance is. So here's what this means. If you can look back in your life and, and you have repented before, but it, it left you feeling worse, it left you feeling uh, more disgraced, more ashamed, more condemned, more insecure, meaning you, you repented, but it felt like you were killing yourself in doing so. Or on the other hand, if you have repented before, but you found yourself after a momentary period of time going right back to habits and behaviors that got you into the mess you're in in the first place, you didn't kill the habits of your heart, I have really good news for you. You have not repented because Psalm 51 is this testament in Scripture that tells us that genuine repentance leads to genuine joy and genuine change. That's what David figured out how to do, and he left us Psalm 51 as a guide so that we might do it as well. But before we get into it, let me just speak to three groups of people that might be on the other side of this teaching, and I I actually think it's appropriate to say probably everybody falls into one of these three groups. First and foremost, there are people listening to this who have, you, you know exactly what it's like to be David here, meaning you have experienced some kind of devastating failure that's brought you to the end of yourself, and you've had a great deal of difficulty leaving the past in the past. If that's you, then, you know, low-hanging fruit here, Psalm 51 is obviously for you. On the other hand, there are a number of people listening to this who you have never experienced anything like David did here. You know, certainly you're not perfect, but you've never experienced anything even in the dimension of, of what David is going through in this period of time in his life. You, you know, you're, you're a pretty good person who's lived a pretty good life. And maybe, though you would never say it out loud, maybe deep within your heart, you believe that you're actually not even capable of something like, like David did here. It's just, I, I can understand how some people could do that. I'm just not that kind of guy. I'm not that kind of girl. And if that's you, Psalm 51 is for you as well. Um, it's meant to serve as a warning that even somebody as great as David was capable of this unimaginable evil that he was capable of here. And certainly, if David was capable of something like this, then you and I would be foolish to assume that we're not. But thirdly, there's a final group of people, and I I think this is actually going to constitute the largest group of us. There's a group of people who don't fit neatly into either of those first two categories, meaning you have not you haven't had a come-to-the-end-of-yourself kind of failure, on the one hand. On the other hand, you're, you really are not arrogant enough to think that you're incapable of that, and so you don't fit neatly into either of those first two groups, but maybe if you got really honest, when you look at your life, 
and you consider the trajectory of your life over the last however many years, if, if, you, if you got real honest, just you and God, you would say, you know what, I'm just not changing the way, the way Scripture says a person can and should. I'm just not seeing that kind of change in my life. Maybe you see verses in the New Testament that talk about how if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. You know, not the same person with the coat of paint on, not the same person with, with the seven habits of highly effective people, but a new creation. Something old has been put to an end. Something new is now alive in you. Maybe, you, you know, you read at the end of Galatians this, this talk of the fruits of the Spirit, which is the, it's the tangible outworking of the presence of the Spirit of God in a person's life that should be there, and it should be growing continuously throughout a person's life. Or, or, or you look at the, the stories of men and women in Scripture, or men and women throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, and you're, you're inspired by that. You see the way they changed so dramatically, and they became these people of greatness and depth and wisdom and character and courage and strength, but you look at your own life, and if you're honest, you'd say, that's just not happening in my life, or at least it's not happening nearly as much as it should or I want it to. And I'll just say, if that's where you're coming from, and frankly, I think that's where most of us are coming from, then the good news is Psalm 51 is tailor-made for you. Because what Psalm 51 is, when you really boil it down, it is a guide for people who want to know how to change and change permanently. So the question is, how do we do it? How do we kill the habits of our hearts that are killing us without killing ourselves? That's the question we're going to answer today by looking at what Psalm 51 shows us about the um, four elements of repentance. And in a sense, these four elements are found all over Psalm 51, but what's really nice and convenient is that they are found in a condensed form in in one single verse in this psalm. It's Psalm 51, verse 4, which just happens to be the most, kind of the most memorable and remarkable verse in this psalm which is what we're going to spend our time in this morning. So let me read Psalm 51, verse 4 to you. This is all it says. It says, Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Right there, we see the four elements of repentance, everything that we need to know. It gives us the foundation of repentance, the requirement of repentance, the fuel for repentance, and the result of of repentance. <clears throat> and that's going to serve as a guide for our time this morning. So first and foremost, let's talk about the foundation of repentance. And to be clear, there is a very specific foundation that must be laid in our lives if our repentance is going to lead to deep and lasting change. All right, so, so in verse 4, and all we're going to do is look at different aspects of this verse. David says, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil. And here's the first thing I want to draw your attention to, just these three words, in your sight. So I'll state this on the front end and then just give me a couple minutes to tease this out. The foundation of repentance, the thing that we most primarily need if we actually want to change, <clears throat> we need an infallible standard that comes from outside of us that allows us to see reality clearly. Until we have that in our lives, then we will never be able to distinguish the difference between true and false guilt. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but not all guilt is true guilt. Some guilt is false guilt, right? A lot of people go through life uh, either feeling guilty for things that they should not feel guilty for, or on the other hand, they simply go through life feeling inordinately guilty about things. All right, if you want a, a great example of this, uh, he's standing on the stage right now, okay? 
I am a um, firstborn child. I'm an Enneagram One, and I am a perfectionist, which when you put those three things together means uh, all of my life I have, um, it's like a superpower, I have found a reason to feel guilty for something. And when I was not feeling guilty, I would feel a little bit of anxiety that I was forgetting something that I should be feeling guilty about. Um, making myself vulnerable in, in the house of God today. The 9 a.m. giggled at this a little bit. It, it's, I'm feeling a little exposed right now, but here I am, okay? Uh, all my life, I, I felt guilty either because I tried to take responsibility for things that I really wasn't responsible for or else I just held myself to unreasonably high standards and then beat myself up for not reaching them. The point is, I felt a lot of guilt that was false guilt. Uh, and, and so there, there is such a thing as guilt that should be dismissed and discarded and not paid attention to. On, on the other hand, uh, there is such a thing as true guilt. All right? It's unreasonable on the one hand to assume that all guilt is false guilt and should be denied, uh, while at the same time it's unreasonable to believe that all guilt is true guilt and should be validated. And so the, the, uh, the, the issue is we need a standard that allows us to differentiate between the two. The question is how are you and I supposed to do that? And the answer for Christians for the last several thousand years is the Word of God. That is our standard that allows us to determine the difference between the two of them. Now if this was it kind of pulling this date out of thin air. But if this was the 1950s, then I could just move on from this point because in the 1950s, you know, even people outside the church and the culture at large had a general respect for the Bible. But you talk about, you know, in, in this day and age, you, when you tell people that they should allow a book that was written a couple thousand years ago to be the standard by which they navigate life, that sounds absolutely insane to a lot of people in this culture. Maybe to some people listening to me right now, and if that's where you're coming from, I think the most important thing for us to understand is that no matter who you are or what you believe, every single one of us already has a standard uh, that we're navigating life with. So for instance, in, in more traditional cultures, like the one that David was born in, uh, your standard was, was given to you by people outside of you, whether that was your family or your clan or your tribe or your, your people group or your nation. Basically, they told you who to be and how to live, and uh, if, you, if you failed to live up to their expectations, then all of your life you were kind of saddled with a sense of guilt, as so many people raised in environments like that can attest. The problem with that, of course, is that the people around you could impose wrong standards on you, which would then lead to a false sense of guilt. Now, I could come up with a billion different examples of this, but here's an easy one. And maybe this is some of your all story. Um, picture a child being raised in a home with two parents that have basically made that child an idol and the success of that child their righteousness, that they, they heaped all this pressure on this kid to succeed and in order to prove that you know, the family's great and worthwhile and valuable and all that kind of stuff. And so they, they heaped an enormous amount of pressure. Again, maybe this is some of your stories heaped an enormous amount of pressure on the child to get certain grades so that they could get into a certain school and get a certain job and arrive at a certain level of career success. And let's say that child does not live up to those expectations and then all their life they're kind of crippled with this sense of failure and condemnation and shame and guilt. According to the Bible, that would be false guilt. All right? Of course, in our culture, our modern culture, we've gone completely the other way. Right? Modern culture basically indoctrinates us with this idea that no one should be able to impose a standard on you, that the only standards that matter are the standards that you impose on yourself. And so all you should do, if you want to kind of find your way in life, is look into your own heart, which that sounds like a great idea. That sounds like an incredibly liberating idea. 
what we're finding out is that is actually it's in, in a lot of ways it's more constricting and devastating than the alternative. And there's a there's a very specific verse in the New Testament in 1 John that tells us why that won't work to let your own heart determine your standard. In 1 John chapter 3 verse 20 John says even if our hearts condemn us God is greater than our hearts. Now what John's talking about there is again something that maybe a number of us have experienced in our lives, maybe you're experiencing right now. He's talking about a scenario in which you, you're going through life and you just can't shake this feeling of failure and guilt and shame and condemnation, but you look around you and no one's imposing any kind of standard on you. What, what's, what's actually happening in your life is your own heart is imposing standards on you. And what John is saying there is that when and not if you and I find ourselves in a situation like that, what we need more than anything else is a God who is greater than our hearts, who can pull us up out of that hole. And so the point that I'm making here is the standard can't come from other people because they're not infallible, but the standard also can't come from our own hearts because it's not infallible. So notice what David does here in verse 4. When David is trying to get right with God and get up from this thing, he doesn't say, I've sinned in the nation of Israel's sight, even though that was true, he did. He doesn't say, I have sinned in my own sight, even though that was true, he did. What he, what he says first and foremost, and this is really the first step in getting out of this hole of shame and condemnation, is he learned to submit himself to the only infallible standard that exists, which is what God has to say. And so he says, I've sinned in your sight. Right? Obviously, if, if God is the author of reality, then the only hope we have if we want to be able to see reality clearly and determine between true and false guilt is to look at what he has to say. Until we learn to submit our feelings to God's standard, then, then we're going to find ourselves in one of two situations in life. We're going to be dismissing guilt that we should be paying attention to, or we're going to be paying attention to guilt that we should be dismissing. And if you're wondering which one of those is worse, the answer is yes. We're going to make a mess of our lives either way. So the first thing that David shows us here. Is, is that when we find ourselves where he is, what we need most foundationally is an infallible standard that allows us to determine the difference between true and false guilt. And there is no infallible standard that exists apart from God's word. <clears throat> Point one. Shifting gears here, um, let's talk about the requirement of repentance. And again, we're just going to look at a different aspect of verse four here. David says, against you, you alone, and here's the phrase I want to I draw your attention to, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. All right, so when we talk about the requirement of repentance, what does it actually require on our end? There it is right there. It's confession. Now, if you look up the Greek word that gets translated into the, the English word confession, I remember I came across this a few years ago and it was very eye-opening to me. All that Greek word means is simply to say the same thing. So biblically speaking, a person has not practiced confession until they've done the work necessary to see their sin from the perspective of the person that they've wronged and call their behavior exactly what it is without any kind of excuse or justification. That's what confession is. Now, that, that sounds like such an incredibly simplistic thing, but if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, when sin first entered the world, Genesis chapter 3, uh, what we learned there is that the human heart naturally um, almost refuses to do this. 
When sin first entered the world and God came to Adam and Eve and basically confronted them about what they had done, the first words out of Adam's mouth, he says, Eve made me do it. The first words out of Eve's mouth, the serpent made me do it. What you're seeing there is is people were just, right from the beginning, people were absolutely allergic to facing themselves and accepting responsibility for what they'd done. And it's easy for us, you know, to kind of Monday morning quarterback that and say what a bunch of idiots I would have handled it differently. But one of the things that story is meant to get across is that the, the condition of the human heart because of sin is we will do almost anything other than face ourselves and take responsibility for what we've done. And so confession, while it might be a simple thing, it's not an easy thing. And it has a lot of counterfeits, counterfeits that I'm sure we've all experienced. So for instance, uh, perhaps, I'm not looking for a show of hands here, but perhaps you know what it's like to be in a relationship with somebody who wronged you, who legitimately sinned against you, and maybe when they have confessed It sounded something like this. I'm really not trying to start a fight. I just need to make a point here. Maybe you've heard somebody who has sinned against you say something along these lines. Hey, if I've offended you, I'm sorry. I just want to point out, have you ever noticed how that doesn't mean anything to anyone? Those words never bring a fight to an end. Uh, They never bring two people who are estranged back together. In fact, they inevitably make things worse because when somebody says, if I've offended you, what they're saying is, listen, (laughs) I'm not interested in seeing this from your perspective. That's too many calories to burn. Let me just say just enough so that you can't technically accuse me of not apologizing to you. That's a false confession. Here's Here's another example. When somebody says, listen, I'm sorry, but... And then 99% of their confession is, is them justifying themselves and explaining how anybody in my position would have done what I've done. And actually, you're being unreasonable and owe me, me an apology for not seeing things from my perspective. Shocking, that doesn't repair the relationship because those are both false confessions and they come from a place of self-pity rather than vulnerability. Uh, so what David is showing us here, just with this phrase, I have sinned and done this evil, David's showing us that there can be no lasting change in a person's life until you and I get to the point where we are able to say, yeah, I may have had a really rough childhood that saddled some unique burdens on me. I I may have been in a situation that applied a great deal of stress to me. Other people may have even sinned against me. All of that can be true. However, at the end of the day, I did what I did because I chose to do it. Remember, years ago, a friend of mine invited me to uh, his, his sobriety anniversary at an AA class, and he stood up there, and he, when he gave his testimony, I'll never forget the way that he phrased this. When he got up there and he told his story, he said, I drank because I liked to drink, and I was good at it. And the reason that he's sober to this day is because he was able to own that, like David says, you and I have to learn to own what is ours to own. So... That's the requirement of repentance. It's, it's confession. It's a willingness to face our behavior and own it without excuse, justification, uh, or qualification. Now, let me, let me pause here. Those are the first two elements of repentance, and, and especially if you were raised in a Christian home or a religious home or you've been in church before, nothing I've said really surprises you. But I'm willing to bet that, that if, especially if I left this here, there are people who would say to this, and actually I'd be one of them, hey, I've done these things over and over again in my life, and they never made me feel better. They actually made me feel worse. And this might surprise you, um, but let me just say, accurate. 
If, if, if all you and I do is the first two things that we've talked about this morning, then your repentance, far from bringing you joy, it's just going to make you feel worse. It's going to make you feel more condemned, more insecure, more guilty, more shame-ridden. The reason for that is because there is another vital aspect to repentance that David, showed, David shows us here. So thirdly, I want to look at the fuel for repentance. And this is really where we look at what is I consider to be the elephant in the room regarding this psalm. At the very beginning of verse 4, David says the most confusing words in this psalm. He says, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. He says, against you and you alone. Now, if you're honest, you probably have a little bit of an issue with David's words there. Because it's certainly, I think the first question is, hey, David, what about all the other people you hurt? And when David says, God, against you and you alone I've sinned, it invites us to ask the question, well, what about Bathsheba? How about Uriah? How about the unnamed soldiers who died, you know, as, as, as kind of uh, casualties on the side to this cover-up? We, we looked at that last week. How about Joab, who you implicated in your, your cover-up? How about the servants that you sent to grab Bathsheba? How about your whole nation that trusted you to be a, a wise and just king? You've sinned against all of them, so how can David say, against you and you alone? If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, which is where we were at last week that really documents David's failure for us, he basically says the same thing there that he says here. Right after Nathan comes and confronts him and, and tells him this story about this, you know, this rich man who, despite owning all this cattle, he stole the one lamb that this poor man had. And then David said, we got to go get this guy. And Nathan said, you're the man in that story, David. The first words out of David's mouth, he basically says the same thing. He, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's easy, if you look at that at face value, it's easy to ask the question, what about everybody else, David? But I'm not trying to be abrasive here. If that's how you read that statement, you're completely missing the point that we're designed to see here. When David says, I have sinned against the Lord, in Psalm 51, when he says against you, you only, have I sinned, what we need to see there, what we're meant to see there is how personal sin is for David. He's not saying I've broken the law or I've broken the rules. What he's saying is, I have sinned against the one who gave us the law. This is David coming to a point in his life that everyone who experiences lasting change has to come to. This is David finally realizing that sin does not just break God's rules, it breaks God's heart. So think of it this way. Had David said in this psalm, against Bathsheba I've sinned, or against Uriah I've sinned, or against all these other people I've sinned, what he really would have been saying is, yeah, against my kingdom I have sinned. And so therefore, what's the implication of that? You know, David's going to be thinking, they're not going to respect me anymore. They're not going to trust me anymore. I might not get to be the king anymore. And all he really would have been focused on was what his sin had done to him, how his sin had cost him. And that's where most of us get stuck most of our lives. See, the real reason underneath every other reason that so often when, when we experience something that we, we hate what we do, but we keep coming back to it and it just kind of becomes this you know, this, this lifetime cyclical pattern, the reason that that, never pattern gets bro- that pattern never gets broken is because here's, here's what happens. We do something stupid, and we don't like the way that it makes us feel. We don't like how it makes us look. We don't like how it costs us. We don't like the consequences associated with, us, with it. And so we momentarily change our surface level behavior, but then the moment the bad feelings go away, or the moment the consequences go away, so does the repentance. What, what David is, is discovering here is something that is so unique to the belief system known as Christianity, that our sin 
while yes, it, it, it absolutely does harm us, of course it does, and absolutely it harms other people, of course it does, that our sin, first and foremost, most foundationally, it hurts the God who made us and loved us enough to give his life for us. When that reality comes home to a human heart and we start hating our sin, not simply for what it does to us, but for what it does to God, that is the formula for lasting change in a person's life. And I can actually say that with some conviction. So I remember about a year ago, <clears throat> it was right after my wife and I, Katie, had our ninth anniversary. We, we got in some really stupid fight, and it lasted a, a, a few days. And like most stupid fights, I don't even remember what it was about. What I do remember is that it was my fault. Important detail. Um, and it had been, I have this really helpful way of when I'm in the middle of a fight, uh, I just kind of detach and I get cold and I get quiet and I don't want to talk about it and I don't want to deal with it. Super helpful, by the way. Uh, and so after a few days of that, Katie, you know, approached me and she wanted to talk about it and I didn't want to talk about it. And I remembered, I'll never forget these words. Katie said something that immediately brought me to the end of myself and immediately put that little whatever you want to call it to an end. She looked me dead in the eye and she said, Ryan, I feel like you're hurting us. Now, Katie could have said a number of things there. She could have said, uh, hey, you're being a bad spouse. You know, you're being a bad communicator. You're being a bad leader. You're being a bad Christian. You're being a bad whatever. You're breaking the rules of healthy relationships, whatever they are. And none of that would have been wrong, but all that would have done was cause me to put up my walls. When Katie told me, when she said those words, I feel like you're hurting us, it came home to me in that instant that my behavior wasn't just hurting me. It was hurting somebody who loved me and that I loved very much. The moment that came home, fight was over. And the point is, if there's ever going to be lasting change in, in any of our lives, we need to get to the point where we hear Jesus say that same thing to us through the gospel. Because until we get to the point where we can understand that our sin most foundationally is against a God who loved us so much that he gave his son to get us back, until we get to that point, then we will repent simply for the reasons that all merely religious people repent. We'll repent because we don't like what our sin does to us. And what David is showing us here in verse 4 with the words against you, you only, is that he managed to break out of that pattern. That's the fuel for repentance. We've got to learn to hate our sin more for what it does to God than what it does to us. And lastly, <clears throat> we see here the, the uh, result of repentance. In the last part of verse 4, it says, Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. And then look at the last part here. David said, so you are right when you pass sentence, you are blameless when you judge. When David says to God here, you're right when you pass sentence and you're blameless when you're judged, what he's doing is, is he's saying, God, I'm done trying to determine the course of my own life because I finally realize I'm not qualified for the job. This is David coming before God with a complete open-handed willing submission and saying, God, Whatever you see fit to lead me through in light of what I've done, uh, whatever consequences you think I need, uh, whatever happens as a result of this, whatever you give, whatever you withhold, I trust you. Now, that obviously is not something that we simply decide to do. That's something that must be done in us. And, and, and really what this is, what you're seeing in David, is this is a callback to what we talked about in, in the very beginning of this series. I don't know if you were here for week one of this series when we looked at the very first recorded sin in the Bible with Adam and Eve. What we talked about that week is the essence of sin. 
And we looked at how sin will always manifest itself on the surface as, as behavior, that underneath every single sin we commit, the essence of sin is a, it's a failure of the human heart to trust God to be God in our lives. And it's this, this stubborn desire that we all have to try to be our own masters and saviors and rulers and lords and determine for ourselves how our lives are meant to go. Uh, That's why the particular temptation that derailed humanity was when the serpent whispered in the couple's ear, you will be like God. If you don't realize how much you desire that, then according to the Bible, you just don't understand yourself very well. But the point is, what we're seeing in David's life here is he has come to the absolute end of that. What David is saying here at the, at the second half of verse 4, he's saying, my biggest problem in life and the thing that nearly ruined my life was my stubborn belief that I know better than you how my life's supposed to, to go, God, that I'm more qualified to run my life than you are, but I finally realize I'm not, so I'm done. I'm letting go of the reins of my life, and I trust you wherever you take me. Now, that's, that's the final result of repentance. That's the litmus test to show us whether or not we've really left something behind us, behind us, in a way that leads to joy and lasting change. The question is how that... How on earth do you get there? How do you get to the point where you trust God enough to actually let go of the reins of your life? And to answer that question, I want to look at what I consider to be, by a wide margin, the most amazing part of this story. I don't know if you were here with us last week, but, but you know, last week was certainly heavy. And maybe this week up to this point has been heavy as well. But I, I mentioned last week that this story of David and Bathsheba is an unbelievable story of grace and redemption. I didn't get to touch on that last week, but before I'm done today, that's what I want to leave us with. Although David should not have, uh, if you know anything about David, you know that he had a lot of wives, and David had a lot of children with those wives. But if you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, what you will discover, and I would have loved to have seen the look on David and Bathsheba's face when they themselves realized this. That according to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, you'll find that God chose to use the union between David and Bathsheba as the catalyst through which he gave us Jesus. Now, in, in ancient times, a genealogy, your genealogy, was basically the modern-day equivalent of your resume. It's what you put forward uh, as something that you were proud of. And when I look at this episode in David's life, it's clear that this could have been this, this failure with Bathsheba on David's end, this could have just been some dead-end, horrible incident that had no redemptive quality whatsoever that was just meant to serve as some cautionary tale that, you know, sin can make fools of us all. But, but God deliberately chose to use David and Bathsheba as two people through whom he would bring his own son Jesus into the world. And like everything else that God does, the question that that forces me to ask is why on earth would God do it like that? What is he trying to get us to understand about himself? And the only possible answer, the only reason God would do something like this is to show us that he is a God of grace who absolutely specializes in redemption. And if any of us are ever going to learn to trust him in such a way that we actually hand our lives over to him, we need to understand that. Let me call the worship team up, and I'll just leave you with this thought today. This episode in David's life is God's way of saying that if you and I sin, then of course there will be consequences, just like there were in David's life for the rest of David's life. But the fact that, that God gave us Jesus through this mess is his way of saying, and man, I hope this means something to somebody this morning, the fact that this led us eventually to Jesus is God's way of saying that you and I are not powerful enough to ruin God's plan for our lives.
This is God's way of saying that not only are you not powerful enough to ruin his plan for your life, but no one else is powerful enough to ruin God's plan for your life. That God is so wise, he is so powerful, and he is so loving that in the end, eventually, God will find a way to weave even our greatest failures even the things that cause us the most pain, the things that we just want to put behind us and never think about and erase completely, God will find a way in the end for everyone who comes to him to weave even those parts of our stories into his plan A for our lives. That's what Romans 8.28 is promising. He will cause all things to work together for the good of those that love him. And if ever we doubt that, we need only look at the ultimate descendant of David, Jesus Christ, who at the end of his life showed us that crucifixion always leads to resurrection. And so finally today, just before we take communion, if you find yourself in a place, like like you know David and Bathsheba were in more than once, if you find yourself this morning looking around your life, thinking, how on earth could anything good come from something this bad? How on earth could God use the things that have happened to me or the things that I've done? If you've ever found yourself asking that question, The best thing I can tell you is look at David and Bathsheba because they wondered that very thing over and over again throughout their lives. They just never would have guessed what God was capable of doing through them. But more importantly than looking at David and Bathsheba, look at Jesus. I guarantee you when Jesus hung on the cross, not a single one of his disciples looked at Jesus' bloodied body and said, I can't wait to see what God does through this. That looked like a dead end to everyone who had walked with Jesus for three years. But three days later, Jesus proved them all wrong. Jesus showed them what God was capable of. And we need what we need to do is go back to Jesus over and over and over again, even when we can't see what God could possibly do with this, because the more that we see Jesus, the more that we see that crucifixion led to resurrection, the more that we'll know that our lives are safe in the hands of that kind of God. So we're going to end uh, this, this, um, this service today, and we're actually going to conclude this entire series by celebrating communion. One of the things that Scripture commands us to do with communion is to examine ourselves. And really, that's been the whole purpose of this entire series. And so Cynthia is going to lead us in one final song. And while she does that, I would just encourage you, whatever God's bringing to the surface in your life, just take that to Him as we celebrate communion. Don't leave today without dealing with that. I'll come back up and and we'll take communion together. But then after I pray and dismiss, I'm actually, we don't do this every Sunday, but it just felt appropriate to do it at the end of this series. I'm going to have the elders come forward to the front of the church. Just in case there's anybody here that wants to talk with or pray with somebody, my hope simply is that if you've come in here burdened this morning, if this series has brought things to the surface of your life this morning, just please don't leave without dealing with that. Please don't leave here without unburdening yourself because that's God's heart for all of us. Amen? Let's take communion. Um, I'm just going to read Psalm 51 over us, and I'd invite you to just still yourself, close your eyes, bow your head, whatever you need to do. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. 
Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. If you haven't done so already, you can take communion. I'm going to close us in prayer and dismiss us, but like I mentioned earlier, the elders are going to be available at the front of the church at the conclusion of this service uh, for anybody that just wants somebody to talk to or, or pray with. And so if we can help you in any way this morning, we'd love to do that. <clears throat> Would you please bow with me? Father God, if we got really honest with ourselves, um, every one of us, has made a mess of our lives just like David has. It might look different for all of us, but the truth is we've all tried to assume the role that, that is yours to assume in our lives. We've tried to be our own gods and rulers and saviors and masters, and in doing so, we've caused ourselves and the people around us a lot of pain, and all we can really say is what David said here. God, we just need you to create a clean heart in us and renew a right spirit within us to make us whiter than snow, to cleanse us, to purify us, to do what we can't do. God, we can't even hate our sin for the right reasons apart from you changing our heart. And so at the conclusion of this series, God, all that's really left to say is we need you. We are so dependent on you. We are so helpless without you. And we're, we're asking with confident expectation, just like David had in Psalm 51, would you change us and do what only you can do in us? Make us the kind of people that know how to rise from failure with with even more love and even more joy and even more peace and even more wisdom and even more strength. It's only your spirit working in us that can do that. And so as a community of people, God, we just, we lay our lives down to you. And my prayer this morning for everybody on the other side of this teaching, help us to experience the joy of your salvation, either for the first time or just the next time, God. Fill us, fill us the way that only you can. We know that you will by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, Severin. Amen.